What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. So the takeaway from Yoda, as I see it, Adam, if you hate the Phantom Menace, it's because you're scared and angry and suffering. I never said I hated the Phantom Menace. I said, okay, maybe I did say that. But Josh, (laughs) that was 20 years ago, and maybe I'm no longer afraid. Intriguing. This week on the show, we're going to take another look at Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. It's the final film in our 9 from 99 series, celebrating the 20th anniversary of the great movie year 1999. Plus, the plastic bags are 9 from 99 awards. That's right, Ricky Fitz, the plastic bags. So much beauty in the world, and it's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We started our 9 from 99 series back in January with M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense. We're going to wrap it up this week with The Phantom Menace in between. We had The Matrix, Josh, Fight Club, The Blair Witch Project, Being John Malkovich, Eyes Wide Shut, American Beauty, and Magnolia. Nine films, not necessarily the best of that great movie year, though there are a lot of great titles in there, but they were the ones we were most eager to revisit and discuss. And for the most part, they're movies we hadn't revisited since 1999. Looking over that list, I'm pretty sure The Matrix is the only one of those nine that I had seen in the years between 99 and now. I think for me, it was being John Malkovich that I had not seen since, and Magnolia. Magnolia was my second viewing 20 years later. Later in the show, we're going to do the 9 from 99 awards, so we'll name our favorite performances, scenes, surprises, and films from that series. And no one suggested anything better, so yeah, we're going to call it The Plastic Bags. That's our name for these awards. A nod to the infamous scene from American Beauty, of course. We did have a few other options. We considered Adam the Red Pills, <laughs> obviously from The Matrix. The Merton Flemers. Love it. That one, that's kind of a deep cut reference mm-hmm. to being John Malkovich. Of course. The building where they work there. The Fidelios and Eyes Wide Shut reference. And another option we thought about, The Frogs. The Frogs would have worked. First up, though, 20 years ago in a galaxy far, far away, we got Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. I was not elected to watch my people suffer and die while you discuss this invasion in a committee. Get me your ships! They will never get me onto one of those dreadful starships. Always two. There are a master and an apprentice. Adam, I'm probably less of an auteurist than you. I'm more willing to kill the author. But I do appreciate the practice of looking at a collection of films from one director and tracing similar themes, techniques, and distinctive touches. And so I wonder if auteurism is one way we might be able to find common ground when it comes to The Phantom Menace, the final film in our 9 from 99 series, looking back at some of the more notable titles from the great movie year of 1999. Now, the easiest way to find common ground on The Phantom Menace is to hate it. When writer, director, producer George Lucas revisited his landmark sci-fi series with the first of a trilogy of prequels, a generation of Star Wars fans, along with most critics, trashed the effort. Not all. I'll note Roger Ebert called it, quote, an astonishing achievement in imaginative filmmaking. For those disgruntled fans, however, the movie did nothing less than ruin their childhood. 
I had a different experience, even though I grew up with Star Wars in the 1970s and 80s, an experience I'll try to describe by quoting from a 1999 review of another film that came out that year, The Mummy. You remember The Mummy, Adam? I didn't see it. The Brendan Fraser vehicle. Okay. Here's Owen Gleiberman reviewing Brendan Fraser's The Mummy, and he's wondering if the blockbusters in the late 1990s had become glib because, quote, we're no longer naive enough to harbor belief in anything as corny as the old monsters. Then again, perhaps we've lost the vision to imagine them. I don't know if we'd lost that vision, but by 1999, many of us who had grown up on Star Wars were hesitant to once again embrace it. Rather than cater to grown-up sophistication, the decidedly untrendy George Lucas simply did what he does best, make a state-of-the-art, old-fashioned movie like The Phantom Menace. The kid in me, no, I, I think the adult in me, was grateful for it. So yes, my name is Josh, and I'm a Phantom Menace defender. While I'm under no illusion, Adam, that this revisit of The Phantom Menace, your first since 1999, has turned you into a huge fan of the film. You didn't care for it at all back then. I do wonder if thinking about the movie as an auteurist artifact from George Lucas might allow you to find some things that you appreciate about it. I'd argue that what's good about The Phantom Menace is what's always been good about Star Wars. Yes, the movie has its Lucas-related flaws, I'll admit to those. I'm sure you're going to want to highlight some of them. But first, I'd like to know, if you look at it as the expression of a singular vision from a singular movie artist, the same way you think about a movie from Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino, is there anything here to admire 20 years later? Hmm. It's such a good question because if there was ever a movie that called for the old school film spotting treatment, where back in the old days, Sam and I would sit here and we would start with something we loved about a movie or at least appreciated about a movie, even if it was just one thing, regardless of how much we overall disliked the movie. I think it's The Phantom Menace. It really does deserve – listeners may disagree. I may even disagree as we get through some of our thoughts here. But I think it's certainly a good place for us as critics to start, to start with something that is positive. And before I get to some of those positives, because I do have them, Josh. I love I'm it. I'm happy to report I've got some positives and I'm eager to hear what you think in response, but I want to comment on that a tourist vision question. And I'm sure we really will get into the minutia of it as we get through this conversation. One can, of course, acknowledge that The Phantom Menace isn't just part of the same galaxy as the original trilogy, and especially, I think, the other Lucas-directed film, A New Hope. It's made up of the same matter, the same DNA. You might even call them midichlorines. <laughs> I, I don't knew, know. I knew we'd get to those. You can know that and think that's true and still regard those films as great and this film as not great. And that's because as true as it might be, I think it's even more false at the same time and in ways that are fundamental and fatal, which we will get into. First, though, the positives. Darth Maul was cool back in 1999. He's still cool. Yeah. Ray Park. Ray Park is fantastic. There is something so striking and menacing about those horns and those orange eyes and the red and black face and that double-bladed lightsaber. Talk about the kid in you getting excited when you saw the trailer for The Phantom Menace in 99. I still got some of those chills, honestly, when I saw him first on screen in this rewatch. The showdown with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan I think is exciting. The touch of the barriers that force them to pause in Mm -hmm. the middle of it, building our anticipation, is really effective. The pod race scene, your beloved pod race scene, Josh. Top five Star Wars scene. 
Okay, let's not get carried away. Most of the close-ups <laughs> in particular in that scene are, I think, pretty bad video game level difficult to look at. Hmm. I don't think any of the comedic relief during that sequence— The close-ups of the drivers? Is relief. The close-ups of the drivers. Huh. And I think, I think it's the CGI is really the issue there. I don't think there are any extra thrills in the sense that there are no surprises in how it unfolds or for me in how it's crafted, except— the choice to not have any music in the sound design. And honestly, I hadn't even caught on to it at first. I watched it with my two youngest, and Quinn pointed out, he's already being negative, but he pointed out that this would be so much better if it had some music. I don't think I agree with my son. I actually at least applaud the choice. Are you going to make me argue with your kid yeah, on this? You're going to argue with the Quinn brilliance. The brilliance of the sequence is a lack of music. We'll get to that. He's not as sophisticated as you, Josh. But I agree with you on this, and not my son. I think that the way we only hear those whooshes and the crashes and the decelerating and accelerating engines is really compelling. Padme Amidala, played by Natalie Portman a much more compelling character than I remembered. Mm -hmm. My recollection was that Lucas completely forgot how to create a character, and that's not completely out of line if you consider the entire film, and instead he decided that the extravagance and the intricacy of her costumes and the makeup were sufficient, that those were somehow enough to do all the heavy lifting for her character, and you didn't need things like, I don't know, personality or agency or really any conflict, not external forces. There's plenty of that maybe too much of that in The Phantom Menace, but not enough internal conflict. And as she reveals her true identity, she becomes a much more compelling character. She's compassionate. She's thoughtful. She's fiercely loyal and protective. She's courageous. These are all elements we saw in Leia, certainly in the Mm -hmm. original trilogy. But those movies belong to Luke and Han. And the way Padme emerges in this film as a better strategist than even our Jedis... (laughs) Well, maybe a little bit disappointing if you're like me who grew up wanting to be a Jedi and you can't believe how semi-incompetent they seem at times. That's the foundation for the Leia and certainly the Rey we've seen now in the current trilogy. And I'm going to throw a little question at you, and it may be incredibly obvious, but something I never thought about before until this revisit. Why does she wear all the makeup and costumes? Well, I think it's just one of those. It's a world-building detail. I think. And and that's one of the things that I think does carry over from the original films and makes this an auteurist effort is Lucas's ability to build a world. It's interesting because this movie fails to do it in some ways and succeeds like no other sci-fi movies do in other ways. That's when it gives you visuals that create the world, costume design, production design, tangible things. Um, That's a real Lucas skill. I think her look has all that's everything to do with it. That's why. Um, now, when you talk about you mentioned midichlorians already, when it starts telling us lore, that's when it's not good world building. Sure. So, yeah, I would say that's why the makeup design and the costume design. I think that's a very smart, insightful, and potentially correct answer. But I've got another one. Okay, which is, it seems very clear that not just in this whole scenario with the viceroy and the. Senate and everything that's going on with the Jedis, she seems to rely pretty regularly on her decoy Mm -hmm. in order to rule her planet, I suppose, her territory, whatever it is. It's a whole lot easier to pull that off with the disguise. Yeah, it's theatrical. It is. Your decoy can 
exist within that disguise. Otherwise, you're reliant on finding someone who is basically your twin, mm-hmm. which might be a lot harder to pull off. So this is also part of her grand strategy in all this. And it shows how forward thinking she is, and I suppose just thoughtful that she is anticipating some of these dilemmas. And she realizes this is a much simpler way to hide the fact that it's usually not her actually portraying the queen. It fits in perfectly with her character. There's a lot of duplicity on her part in order to gain an advantage. And my last positive is, even though I don't at all think they do enough with her, I think Pernilla August as Shmi Skywalker is remarkably human as Anakin's mother. That's the only way I can say it. And this is maybe a little bit of a backhanded compliment because I think she stands out in relation to a lot of the other characters. I would agree. She's flesh and blood. It's a real performance. Yeah, it's a real performance, a real person in a way that I don't really feel as much with all of the other performers, even the ones that are non-CGI. Will I ever see you again? What does your heart tell you? I hope so. Yes. I guess. Then we will see each other again. That was a very, very long list and... Sounds to me like a really good movie. Yeah, four stars. I think, I think you just described a great movie, Adam. <laughs> I'm all in. Uh, let me just riff briefly on a couple of those things to to accentuate them. But Amidala has – you're absolutely right. She's not only a successor to Leia but a predecessor to Rey mm-hmm. in the recent trilogy that we're getting and just cementing the series' disinterest in Damsels in Distress. Um, that's a positive. That's a through line. I love the touch here when she just decides to leave the squabbling of the Senate, uh, these men who are really producing nothing of effect, and she's, I'm out of here, I'm going back to Naboo to get some yeah. work done. Yeah. Right? It's it's just such a kiss-off. I like that touch. I can see that, and of course, I also have to note that at the moment where we just watched them for an hour expend all this energy and risk all these lives to get her to the Senate, she then turns around and sure. says, I'm going back. Sure. It was all basically for nothing. Well, it was. But she also didn't realize what was happening there until she had seen it. There's, it's one of the levels of deception going on. But I have to defend the pod race. And Quinn, great kid. I'm sorry, buddy. But there's the key to this is allowing the sound design to come to the forefront. The editing mm-hmm. in this sequence is masterful. It's 10 minutes long and it, it's perfectly earns every second, I would say. Um, The visual effects, I think, stand up just fine. Uh, As a matter of fact, there's something comical. One of the few points where Jake Lloyd works and the strange reason to cast a a kid this young is by seeing that oversized helmet on his head as he's operating Mm -hmm. this machine and emphasizing another through line in Star Wars and that it's the least expected and the least likely who are going to pull something off. Um, But yeah, those unique pulsating thrums that each pod gets allows us to orient ourselves not only visually but through the audio as well. And the music does come in. Um, Lucas brings it in, I would say, when it's only Anakin and Sepulba who are left against each other. And then we get that traditional score that is a nice decision because it kind of reorients the drama. It's like now we're really in it. Um, so I do like that touch. And even the designs of the pods themselves, it's it's one idiosyncratic heap of junk after another. It reminded me a little bit of the vehicles in Mad Max Fury Road. Um, Obviously, those more tactile because they weren't relying on visual effects. But each one of these looks like it was crafted by an individual pair of hands. So I think that really is a masterful sequence. And the other one you highlighted, I would agree, is the second 
high point of this film, the Darth Maul showdown, the John Williams score there, mm-hmm. Duel of the Fates. This uses silence as well to accentuate uh, the suspense. And much of it is in long shot, so we can get a full view of Ray Park's acrobatics as Darth Maul. There's that great push-in of the camera when we move into the chamber with those force fields you mentioned Mm -hmm. that turn on and off. Um, And yeah, the use of those fields to just generate suspense. I love how Darth Maul paces back and forth while Qui-Gon just kneels down patiently and meditates. Which is also different than Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan. Who is younger. Granted, he's coming off a pretty heightened, intense situation having seen what he just witnessed. But at the same time, he doesn't behave at all the same way Qui-Gon does. And he hasn't learned that mastery. earlier, exactly, we hear him say, we hear Qui-Gon say when talking to the Jedi Council that he's still a little, I can't remember what the word is, but basically hot-headed. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and this is an example, the performances overall are not strong in The Phantom Menace. Um, but this is an example where there is character demonstrated effectively through movement. Um, and you have Darth Maul pacing back and forth like a tiger in front of that force field. You have Qui-Gon kneeling in meditation and you have Obi-Wan kind of just um, simmering yeah. with with anger in the background. And I think that's really effective. I do um, too. But, but I really want to hear more about the ways you think auteurism is not a helpful way to think about Phantom Menace. Well, I think before I get to that, really what is my basic argument against this movie, I think we do have to lay the foundation a little bit by getting into some of the particulars that are not ultimately what pushed me away from this movie, but they certainly contributed. They certainly are part of a larger storytelling issue. And it goes back, Josh, I can't help it. I read this when you wrote it back in 2015. I've read it a few times since because anytime Star Wars and the prequels come up, I think about the article you wrote for the Las Vegas Weekly back in 2015, where you kind of laid out fairly briefly and concisely your manifesto defending the prequel. So I had that in mind. I've had it in mind for five years, and I certainly had it in mind as I was watching this movie. And it's well argued, of course. It's well written, of course. You've got some great rhetoric in there. You have that great opening line, which is you don't really hate the Star Wars prequels. You hate that you grew up. Okay, you got me provocative. But I think besides the fact that you assume that moviegoers are only capable of viewing Star Wars through a nostalgic lens, which is kind of what you throw at a lot of viewers, for me, your argument is based on a lot of false equivalencies. And the first one is you say Hayden Christensen. You're talking about, obviously, Attack of the Clones and Sith here. But I'm guessing you might say the same for Jake Lloyd. You say he's really no worse than Mark Hamill whining, you know, about Tashi Station and power converters. And no. No, not even close. Mark Hamill actually gives a really good performance as Luke. And I think that that power converter In a line, new hope? Yeah, in a new hope. Upon recent rewatch, I felt that way about his performance. Wow. And that power converter's line, I think, is an easy target. A mostly isolated one that isn't nearly as cringy as you suggest it is. So I will completely go to bat for that line reading. I think it's just fine. And bad acting overall in general, I mean, not that this probably needs to be spelled out, It's not that it just makes you cringe a little bit watching Jake Lloyd just butcher every single line and emotion. He's bad. There's not a single moment that feels genuine. Of course, it's not that it's annoying. It's that you never are able to fully connect with that character. And when you get to that part in particular, which is the best line of the film, we heard it at the beginning of the show, the line that Yoda has about fear leading to anger and anger and on and on, you never actually feel that fear in Jake Lloyd because he's not able to convey it. And that's a problem. That's a problem for the film. That's a problem for the viewer trying to connect with the material. You say Jar Jar Binks. 
is no more annoying than C-3PO. Stand by it. Okay. I stand by it. C-3PO was never now one of my favorite characters. Yes, he is. Their obnoxiousness and the irritation they provoke, it can't even be measured on the same scale. And I think that you have to also include in that that you actually do believe Luke and company in A New Hope or the other films is sharing the same physical space with C-3PO because they are. It's really brutal for me watching Ewan McGregor and Liam Neeson looking just slightly off from Jar Jar's head every time they're ever engaged in a conversation. That's distracting. It feels false. It's also distracting that you notice those times where Lucas is really just playing with you and trying to point out how good the CGI is. Look, he's not computer generated. He his ears are really there. They're they're flopping into the yeah, person next to, to him. They have to dock the same branch. I think yeah. that's all effective. Cho- choosing to use those details when you compare it to other uses of CGI at that time, mm-hmm. they were not that sophisticated. No, those those aren't tricks. Those are creative choices to emphasize that they are in the same space. Now I'm not saying like that Jar Jar Brinks computer animation stands up today's standards. Sure, I, I was surprised. It. Bad character. I mean, I'm not going to defend okay, Jar Jar Brinks as a character, but the the animation, the computer animation, I was surprised at how well it held up for me this time. Okay. Well, as we are comparing him to C-3PO, because you did originally, I think that you also have to at least acknowledge that C-3PO was not offensive to anyone except, I suppose, maybe British people who don't like being portrayed as so proper, right? I mean, I don't doubt Lucas meant no offense. Yeah, but this is one reason he's a bad character. But it's not just Jar Jar. That's the thing. I was prepared for that. I wasn't prepared for the entire depiction of the Gungans as this African tribe. I wasn't prepared for the viceroys, the evil characters there being portrayed with East Asian accents. There's a whole Shylock thing going on with Watto, and I know many people have argued that. Even if you don't think it's offensive, and I'll hear you out on that argument. I don't mean you. I mean anybody out there listening. You have to at least acknowledge that it's questionable and oh, it's yeah. comforting, yep. right? Okay. Yeah, and so, anyone who does take offense at it, I, I'm not going to claim that they're seeing something that isn't there. Okay. I, I get that. Well, the other thing is you single out certain lines of dialogue in A New Hope and Empire to kind of prove that you know, The Phantom Menace isn't the only one that has a few clunkers in it. But I do think all that does is emphasize dialogue over other aspects of storytelling, more crucially structure and character. That's the key for me. The dialogue here, it's not the issue, as cringy as it sometimes is. The acting also really isn't the issue, nor is it any single annoying character, nor is it that the film overall excruciatingly overemphasizes plot over story. For me, Josh... The thing that Lucas absolutely cannot tap into is there is no sense of wonder. And you can talk about the thrills. Oh, wow. You can talk about thrills okay. the movie gives right. you in terms of pod racing or whatever. For me, there is no wonder. There's no yearning. There's no spirit. As I watched Anakin on his journey, all I kept asking myself was, what's the equivalent in The Phantom Menace of Luke going out to look at the binary sunset? It's not there. It's not there anywhere in The Phantom Menace. That's what actually captured our imagination as children, that hero's journey. We wanted to be Luke. We wanted to be Han. We wanted to be Leia. It wasn't fast ships and lightsabers. It certainly wasn't midi-chlorians and taxation debates and slapstick and silliness, which we get a lot of in this film, obviously, particularly with Jar Jar Binks. So for me, the argument that this is kind of Lucas tapping back into a kid's movie which is part of a series that was always a kid's movie, I feel like it's one that really patronizes kids, presuming that it's that kind of silliness that we prefer or that they prefer. 
and he trusted us before. He trusted us before as kids, and I don't think he did in 99. Well, what's interesting is that kids who have watched the prequels and are unaware of their cultural status love the movie. Like kids who encounter Star Wars that way find plenty of wonder in it. And I can talk about some of the places that I, I do find wonder in it as well. But just to go back to, you know, the the idea that I'm trying to make false equivalencies, I'm not trying – I think the distinction is I'm not trying to make exact equivalencies. So when I draw those comparisons, it's not to say that Phantom Menace is as good as A New Hope. Mm-hmm. I fully admit there is a gap between the prequels and the other films. Mm-hmm. My point in that piece, which is not a piece of film criticism as much as mind reading of the people who complain, my point (laughs) is that the gap in people's perception is that it's monstrous, that these films are a travesty compared to what we got before. And my argument is that whatever gap there is between them is infinitesimal compared to what people have claimed and, I guess all and I'm saying described. is the gap really is that big. Let me That's tell you let me tell you how it if you look at especially through this tourist lens why um, I don't think it is that big. And there are a number of ways, there are a number of things to consider. The way it is very close in tone, very close in vision, very close in theme and very close in special effects artistry. And I'll I'll just go through these quickly. But as far as the tone, I don't think it is underestimating kids or not taking them seriously. I think it is believing in an unabashed earnestness. And that's what the first films had. That is what you have here that reads sillier to us as adults. I think it's a through line and you can sense it exactly in both films the same way. Most movies had become there was either a brooding seriousness or a winking self-awareness. And when we encounter something that doesn't have that, especially after getting a lot of blockbusters that did, we're not quite sure what to do with it. And I think it's remarkable that Lucas was able to maintain that tone over, what, a 16-year gap and drop us right back into it where it felt the same. It felt the same in one sense. And it felt very different in another because we were 16 years older. As far as vision, I already talked about the world building and the underwater Gungan City is an example of wonder where the two suns where you see the the chase underwater or when you first encounter that glowing orb city. Honestly, I think that's the kind of world building that is unlike other things you had seen before. I think we are making a little bit of a distinction semantically, though, between wonder in the sense that something is awe-inspiring and wonder in the way you see a character yearning or longing for something that you attach to. I'm not disputing that there aren't sights in the film that sort of catch your attention, but I would also argue that this is a movie that is filled with those kind of intentionally awe-inspiring sights that really aren't that wonderful. All the clutter that we get of those vessels constantly moving across any city's skyline all that color that splashed on the screen, I get what he's going for. It is eye-catching. But for me, it's also Josh a screensaver that's running in the background of mostly dull characters saying mostly dull things. Well, I don't think they're dull characters for one thing. I think Watto, though you may have problems with it, is a character that also is not only inventively realized using CGI and absolutely feels like he takes up the same space, but has a narrative trajectory in his sequence where you follow him through a specific experience. You can say the same for Sebulba, the pod racer that Anakin ends up going after. We get a full sense of who this character is. And again, creative touches, details, action, not necessarily dialogue, but action, the way he snaps his goggles back very cockily when he sees someone and you get a full sense from that who he is. But really, it's it's theme that is continued throughout this movie as well. The, the sense that we're getting to see the innocent 
vibrant youth of this iconic villain, Darth Vader. And yes, the performance by the kid is not good. But again, that is not Lucas's strength as a filmmaker is in getting performance and maybe even in casting, you could say. But we do see it in moments like Obi-Wan smiling at him when they first meet. And Lloyd may not be able to deliver the line, but the interactions between them and the knowledge, again, where the serious history comes into play, that Obi-Wan has no idea this is the person who is going to strike him down. Or in the scene with Yoda looking at the boy, it's in Yoda narrowing his eyes. So yes, Lloyd is not delivering it there, but Lucas is delivering it in other ways using what are his strengths with which again, special effects, imagination, those sorts of things. And as far as the wonder, I I mean, I can, I find it, I feel it in a scene going back to the pod race. There is, Star Wars has always been about the scale of hope. Okay. It's, it's again, this idea in this vast universe where the heroes, the ones we align ourselves with are so behind the eight ball. They have no chance of overcoming whatever adversary there might be. And there's a scene in the pod race sequence where Anakin's pod racer is small, tinier, right, than most of them. Mm -hmm. Definitely smaller than Sebulba's. And when the two of them are the only ones left, there's a moment where Anakin's little cockpit is just ahead of Sebulba's and the giant engines of Sebulba's are approaching him and he's almost succumbed by it. And his freedom is on the line at that point and it captures everything that that, is great. Yes. It, it captures, is. but we know that. Yeah. It captures everything that is great about Star Wars in an image. It's it's something we had never seen before. It's something we couldn't imagine ourselves. It has huge implications for the characters that we're following. And it has implications that go beyond and will ring wider in this galaxy that we know for reasons that we know because of our history for it. So when I see just a shot like that, I feel a ton of wonder. And that carries me over what I will admit are flaws in this movie that make it, you know, not as important as the, not as good as the originals, for sure. For me, a scene that spoke to exactly what I'm getting at in terms of lacking wonder, there's a conversation he has, Anakin has, with Padme, I think when they first get to the Senate, and they're outside, and it's at nighttime, and they're looking at the stars. And he says, I want to be the first one to see them all. And I feel like what that scene could have been is pretty magnificent. Maybe if it was a different George Lucas directing it or a different director altogether. But it's pretty much a sequence constructed on two shots, back and forth dialogue where the character has to spell it out rather than express it physically, rather than the camera expressing it. It's incredibly dark in the scene. I know that it's nighttime, but there's nothing adding to the scene whatsoever. It feels like a puzzle piece. It feels like So much of this movie feels like Lucas needs characters to be in certain places to say certain things because there's a lot of plot. And for the next thing to unfold, this thing needs to happen for that chain of events. I never felt that way watching those films. And I don't think that it's just because now I'm older and I look at this all completely differently. I think there's a different approach as much as there are similarities. And you articulated it so well. There is an auteurist vision here, without a doubt. That doesn't mean that despite all those details, and you touched on some of those great details, that doesn't mean that those all add up to the same type of story or certainly the same type of power that those original films had that I felt like they really did tap into the sense of myth in a way that I never feel with the prequels. Now, I felt it 
eventually with the revenge of the sith and i know i'm a little bit out on a limb enjoying that film as much as i do but that's a discussion for another day yeah and i'm you know i'm clearly not making the argument that phantom menace is flawless and i should probably get to a few of the things that you know that i actually don't like about it and one is the narrative construction and the reliance on lore i mythology is different than myth when yes. you when you have the sense of a myth unfolding around you in a movie that's different than being told about the mythology of that world right and the frustrating thing about phantom menace is it does both it doesn't need the lore because it's giving you the myth i think in some of the imagery um and so the midichlorians the virgin birth all this stuff you know we <laughs> more of the matrix we, don't, we got the one <laughs> we, we don't need it the cgi i've been defending but i am going to agree especially on the scene you mentioned the cityscapes um of coruscant too much of it it's like Lucas got a new toy exactly. and went crazy with it. But I don't think it ruins the film, and I think it works very effectively in certain sequences. Jar Jar, we've already covered. Bad idea, bad characterization, a lot of missteps there. Technically, I think impressive. But he's other in than a that, a lot of the film, Josh. It, and he's in a lot of the film, more than people remember. And the other thing, I, you know, we've touched on as well, but I, I'm absolutely going to agree with you. I am not going to defend this film by pointing to uh, a particular piece of vocal delivery performance of a piece of dialogue that Lucas has written. Not the movie strengths. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you that that was necessarily the strengths of A New Hope uh, as well. I may but... have it down on the list, Josh, but I think <laughs> Hamill gives a legitimately good performance. I do. Yeah. I'm just, I, I'm just not sold on him. And, and I, I would, you know, even take that all the way through to The Last Jedi uh, in terms of just a performer um, who is trying to to hold the myth that his character has been imbued with. I think that's been a problem throughout the series. Again, a way the two trilogies are closer together than people think. Not saying Hamill is terrible, but it's, it's kind of on that range of not great performances in the series. Well, I think that does it. Did we get to express everything we feel about these movies? I had positives. I had a lot of negatives. You had some similar reservations. I'm going to take, take solace in the number of positives you found. That's good enough for me. The Phantom Menace is available on demand on Disney Plus, or, of course, you can look for it at your local library. If you agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. So the next question is, how many awards will The Phantom Menace sweep up in the plastic bags? Our picks for the best scenes and performances of our 9 from 99 series. Stay with us to find out. So how old are we, Josh? We are almost exactly Star Wars trilogies old. For me, born 74. Yep. New Hope came out in 77. And I, I'm never quite sure. I must have seen it. You know, it played, I believe, 
a year, two years or more in theaters because mm-hmm. I wouldn't have seen it when I was four. So yeah. I must have been five or six. No, like I would have been two when it came out. And I don't remember seeing it until about 1980, maybe 79, but playing at the drive-in. I've talked about it before on the show. So it was a little bit later, but obviously still a big movie and a big deal to go to the drive-in. I wonder if they it. did a re- theatrical re-release just before Empire. They might have. That would make sense. They might have. Now, this does go back to our discussion in the previous segment just a little bit, one of the things that did occur to me that we didn't talk about at all during our review is some of my issues with the movie might not be completely attributable to Lucas somehow forgetting how to tell a good story. It's the fact that it's a prequel, that it's part of a series intended to be a series, whereas when he produced Star Wars, it was Star Wars. Self-contained. He had some of the larger thoughts of the myth maybe in mind or where future stories yeah. might go. But my understanding is, and I was talking via text to our friend Brett Merriman on the way here, and he was explaining that, yeah, he saw the movie back in 77. And I think I had forgotten this if I ever knew it. It was just called Star Wars. Yeah. The episode four, the whole sure. New Hope thing, that was added later. So those were self-contained movies that have really satisfying conclusions and you have characters who sort of complete their journey. Turns out there's a lot more of it to go, but they complete it within the confines of the film. I feel like some of the characters in The Phantom Menace are spinning their wheels a little bit until they get on to bigger, more dramatic things. Or in the case of Empire, they don't complete it in an intriguing way precisely because we know there's another chapter. So, Well, but he didn't then and we didn't as viewers then is what Empire, I'm saying. By the time of Empire, we knew there'd be a third oh, You're right. Film. Watching yeah, yeah. Empire, we know there's yes, going to be yes, 100%. Sorry. Absolutely. What you heard prior to that little digression was the trailer for Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. It opens next weekend, and we will have a review next week. So obviously, wanting to catch up with The Phantom Menace as part of this series, get a chance to dive into that movie a little bit because it's only been talked about only in terms of asides and little digs at each other over the years, but also because it sets up nicely this conversation we're going to have next week about Episode Nine. It will be a busy week next week for us. I don't know if we want listeners to have any sympathy for us. I don't think they probably do. Yeah, I don't think they're going to feel bad for but us. But we're not only going to be recording our top 10 roundtable, both parts of that roundtable with Michael Phillips and Tasha Robinson, we are going to record a review of Star Wars. And we're also going to share my interview with the Safety brothers, Josh and Benny. Not all of that. Are we going to put out, though, next week? That's so right. we'll be getting to this over the course of the next couple of weeks because Rise of Skywalker does open on the 20th. That's when we plan to run our review along with Adam's interview with Josh and Benny Safdie, the directors of Uncut Gems. Then the following week, we'll release part one of the top 10 roundtable. And as we've done the last two years, I think now we'll begin with our outlier picks. So these are the ones that appeared on only one or maybe two of our top 10 lists among the four of us. Then around New Year's, we'll put out part two of that roundtable. These will be the consensus picks, probably the ones that are in the one to three or four slots of most of our lists. Of course, that's all predicated on there being some divergence in our lists. And I'm expecting a fair amount of crossover this year, honestly, just in terms of, for me, a lot of the big titles of the year, a lot of the ones that I certainly expected to be the best films of the year, they ended up being the best films of the year. I think we're going to have a lot of... I know you'll surprise me. Well, what I was going to say is I think you're right in that there will be a lot of convergence in the top four. Um, But it's been such a great year that I could see each of us going a lot of different directions after those top four slots. Yeah, and Uncut Gems is a movie that is out now, I think, in L.A. and New York. Doesn't come to Chicago and other cities until Christmas Day, but... 
the Safdie brothers, this is their second time on the show, talked to them a few years ago when they were here to promote Good Time. And they are fascinating filmmakers and they're fascinating people to talk to. They really are fun to have in the studio. I think other than Danny Boyle, they're the only returning guests. I mean, Ryan Johnson's been on a few times. I guess he's been interviewed directly at least twice on the show, maybe three times. So it's him, Danny Boyle, and the Safdie brothers joining Good Company. I'm excited to share that interview with you guys. That will be next week on the show. Now, if you are regular listeners and you're paying close attention to the calendar and you're doing the math, you do recognize that we are sharing parts one and two of our roundtable a little bit later than normal. That's because of Star Wars, as Josh said. So we're going to sneak that in, and then we'll put out the next two shows just a week behind what we would normally do. But my feeling is, Josh, everybody out there has enough not only film spotting content to probably catch up on, they've got enough movie content and pop culture content in general, keeping them busy over the holidays. I don't think it'll be a big deal. No, and maybe gives them another week to catch some of these films themselves. Great point. In the new year... We're going to wish ourselves right now a very happy early birthday. We turn 15 in March, March 6th to be exact. And we are celebrating that with a still in the planning stages, but looks like going to be a reality, <laughs> Baltai City Tour. Oh, that's a long title. We always joke about Is that about going to be it. on the tickets? No. <laughs> if we say it on the show, then it has to happen, right? Mm-hmm. So there's We've a lot of work to do. We've said it. We've said it. But basically, we're going to come to your city. Well, a few cities. We're going to screen a film. We're going to discuss it. We're going to have a little Q&A, probably record it and share it. But basically, we want to have a little meet and greet. We want to hang out with our listeners. Some of the most fun we've had doing this show over 15 years, in my case, is just hanging out with our listeners. Yeah, but mostly we've done that independently as you and I are traveling around Mm -hmm. the country elsewhere and getting a chance to do meetups. We've obviously done a number of live shows in Chicago and that, you're right, has been the highlight before we even get to taping of the rap parties just hanging out in the lobby with listeners. And we always hear from people, some people come states away for those, but for people who haven't been able to, when are you going to come? to my city. We're Mm -hmm. not going to be able to hit them all. I think we're looking at hopefully hitting three, fair to say. Three Three and Chicago. Starting in Chicago and then get to three more. So hopefully we'll be out to see some of you and you can celebrate the 15th anniversary with us. So a lot more information to come, including ticket information, but the tour is going to kick off conveniently right here in our hometown of Chicago. Saturday, February 8th is the date if you want to put it on your calendar. And we're excited to be back at the venue where we celebrated our 500th show. Speaking of Ryan Johnson, he was part of that episode at our beloved Music Box Theater on the north side of Chicago. So if you're one of those listeners, I suppose they're going to have to hear all the cities that are going to be part of this tour because I was going to say that if there was ever a time to maybe make a trip to Chicago, if you're such a hardcore listener that this live show sounds fun and you've heard about the Music Box, well, this is a good opportunity. It might be worth the ticket if you don't live in one of those other cities. And we're being a little bit coy. There are going to be some big cities where you would expect that we would have a lot of listeners, and we will have those full details coming pretty soon. We'll announce them here on the show and over filmspotting.net as well. But we wanted you all to save the date for the Chicago show, Saturday, February 8th. Quick word about the next picture show. Every two weeks, our sister podcast pairs a new movie, a recent release, with a classic. The hosts are Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. And this week, it's their Breaking Up is Hard to Do Part 2 segment. 
Noah Baumbach's marriage story. So their previous episode discussed 1979's Kramer versus Kramer with Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman. Now they're getting to marriage story and we'll be discussing that, comparing and contrasting the two. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday at midnight. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. More information is at nextpictureshow.net. Sam Van Halgren, film spotting producer. Did you see his letterbox log for marriage story? I did. Five stars. He, he went Love crazy it. for it. Went crazy for it. Massacre Theater is the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of last week's Massacre. Twelve commandments? Hmm. Excuse me, but uh, I believe there were only ten. Really? Only ten must be obeyed. Excellent. Ah, well then, which which two to take off? So as we acknowledged last week when we performed it, we did it because it's such a good tie-in with a topic discussed on last week's episode. And also, it's just such a great, hilarious scene. We wanted to give it a go. I've been pleasantly surprised with a number of entries. Okay. Certainly a few people out there have seen it, a more recent film. And... I'll give you a little clue. One of those topics, maybe this was the only topic that our producer had in mind, Sam, when he was connecting Massacre Theater to our show. We talked about Little Women last week, the latest from Greta Gerwig as a filmmaker. Doesn't appear in the movie. She does appear as a star in a recent film by the same director of the movie we massacred. Okay. In fact, her performance has been singled out by me in that movie, I think at an end of year rap party. Okay, another clue, another clue for listeners. If you know from that clue or from what you heard, which film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is this coming Monday, December 16th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. Over at filmspotting.net is where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. Of course, it is end of year time. As we said, our top 10 of the year roundtable coming up shortly. And we would like some of your feedback. We're asking you simply, what is the best film of 2019? And we made the choices pretty simple. We gave you only three this time. Well, four if you count others. So if you don't care about any of these three movies, if you have another movie that was by far your favorite this year, you adored and you want to make sure it gets some love, you can vote other and write it in and you can leave a comment and we might just share it on one of those upcoming episodes. Josh, the three choices we gave listeners were. Scorsese's The Irishman, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Now, the last time we discussed this, Parasite was in the lead. Do you know? Is that still the case? I believe it is still in the lead the last time I looked. Okay. We'll share those results. We'll also share your comments on our Best of 2019 Roundtable. Again, that will be out in a couple of weeks. It's been a little bit, I think, since we've had time for donations here on the show and saying thank you to our listeners. And I want to share a note of thanks that we got from a longtime listener, friend of the show. His name is Josh Youngerman in New York City, originally from these parts, Josh, a Chicago suburb. And he wrote in to say that he just wanted to pay a little tribute to his dad, David Youngerman, who was a film spotting listener. He passed away several weeks ago. He and I enjoyed listening to the show together. He was actually a big Matty Ballgame fan himself and often found himself agreeing with him the most, except on baseball, as he was a diehard White Sox fan. His favorite film spotting recommendation was Roger Dodger. I like David's taste. And his biggest film spotting disagreement was disagreeing with Sam's review of Howard Hawks bringing up Baby. I want to say that we were both similarly negative about that Howard Hawks film. So maybe, maybe he disagreed with both of us. But Josh said he just wanted to thank us for providing something that my dad and I shared together. It's a really touching note. Obviously, as I said, I've known Josh a little bit. And that's one thing I never knew 
about Josh, that he actually listened to a show with his dad, which we know there are a lot of you out there that do share the show with your kids or with your parents, and we really are grateful for that. Our condolences, Josh. Josh, actually, I think maybe the first film spotting listener I had a chance to meet in person. I don't maybe. know if you remember, but that drive-in introduction we yep. did yep. <laughs> the, the first year that I was part of the show. So I met Josh there, I think, another time over the years. And yeah, certainly our thoughts are with your family. Greg W. was a listener who was nice enough to send us some of his hard-earned cash this week, along with Mauricio, a silver club donor from Parts Unknown. And we heard from James in Tallahassee, Florida, formerly of Evanston, Illinois. He thanked us for the great shows and the golden bricks. Finally, some very generous gold club donors, Carly B. And I think it's pronounced Yair. Y-A-I-R. Yair. There you go. That's what I'm going with. I hope I did it justice. Thank you to everyone who donated this week and to everyone who supports the show year round. Victor, the woman lying dead in the morgue was the woman at the party. Yes. Well, Victor, maybe I'm missing something here. You called it a fake, a charade. Do you mind telling me what kind of charade ends with somebody turning up dead? We go back to 1999 with Tom Cruise and Sidney Pollack in that scene from Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. It's time for our 9 from 99 awards. That series, a nine-film retrospective celebrating the 20th anniversary of one of the best movie years ever, 1999. The films we revisited for the series were The Sixth Sense from M. Night Shyamalan, The Wachowski Sisters, The Matrix, David Fincher's Fight Club, The Blair Witch Project, Spike Jones being John Malkovich, Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, Sam Mendes' Best Picture-winning American Beauty, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, and... The Phantom Menace. You can find our reviews of all of those films over at filmspotting.net slash 9 from 99. A couple weeks back, we asked you to weigh in on the series with this question. What is the best 9 from 99 performance? Now, for options, we gave you one performance from each of these films. We didn't include Tom Cruise, despite his memorable turns in both Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia. We should just make this the Cruise Memorial Poll. We probably should. I certainly considered it. The options we did give you were Brad Pitt in Fight Club, Heather Donahue in The Blair Witch Project, John Cusack in Being John Malkovich, Keanu Reeves in The Matrix, Nicole Kidman in Eyes Wide Shut, Philip Seymour Hoffman in Magnolia, Tony Collette in The Sixth Sense, Wes Bentley in American Beauty, or you could go with other. No surprise here. Tom Cruise in Magnolia was the big write-in winner. So a patented, flawed film spotting poll question in that we did want to narrow it down to one performance from each film, as we noted. And you know what? Sam and I decided to pay tribute to Philip Seymour Hoffman and go with him from Magnolia, though there are certainly other great options from that movie. I have a feeling that Cruz might get a little bit more love here as we get further into the awards. Josh, how did the poll come out? Well, despite the fact that we gave him a fair amount of praise, I think, in our discussion of American Beauty, Wes Bentley is in last place with only 3%. Other received 4% of the vote. 5% went to Keanu Reeves in The Matrix, 6% to Heather Donahue in The Blair Witch Project, 7% to John Cusack in Being John Malkovich. A little bit of jump here with Nicole Kidman in Eyes Wide Shut, who received 11% of the vote. Tony Collette got 13%. And then 
With 24%, we have Brad Pitt in Fight Club. But, Adam, it looks like you and Sam made the right choice. Yeah, we did. By putting Philip Seymour Hoffman in here as the Magnolia representative. He won with 26% of the vote. Adam Frost in Brunswick, Maine, writes in, thought number one. Honestly, you can name Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance in any movie as the best of whatever year, and you'd probably be right. That said, when dealing with a sweeping ensemble fantasia like Magnolia, going with the small and carefully contained supporting role is like ordering a steak at a fish place. No matter how amazing that steak is, you're kind of missing the point. Thought number two. Yes, John Cusack rocked the proverbial casbah in being John Malkovich, but consider, for the entire third act, Malkovich has to play Cusack playing him. Cusack is the sheriff of Nottingham's best archer striking the bullseye. I love the analogies here. Malkovich is Robin Hood splitting that arrow up the middle like it ain't no thing. <laughs> Final vote. This is such an even field that of the eight performances here, at least six of them could win without making me whine about it. In the end, though, I went with Heather Donahue in The Blair Witch Project, partly for the most vulnerable seat-of-the-pants performance of the year and partly as a corrective and a middle finger to the Razzie Awards for giving her worst actress because her nose ran perspective people i had forgotten that happened kind of undermines the credibility of the razzies yeah, quite frankly it really does doesn't it here's zach in chicago liam neeson in the phantom menace reminds me of michael kane's observation that you can win an oscar for the easiest acting of your life aided by a brilliant script neeson was in the opposite position it's not a great performance but you could see him struggling valiantly to create a character from george lucas's dialogue okay well played zach thank you to everyone who participated in the poll question that brings us to our nine from 99 awards we are calling them the plastic bags it was my suggestion yes i was more favorable on american beauty than you it's not going to win your best picture award in fact it would win your worst picture of the series award but it's really more about the fact that american beauty was the biggest prize winner of that year it ultimately took best picture and we're handing out awards and also that scene that ricky fit scene is all about recognizing the beauty in the world. So we're recognizing the best, the beauty in this 9 from 99 series. I thought it made sense, Josh. And even I like that scene, so okay. it works. We are going to start with our favorite supporting performance from the series. We'll go ahead and read the nominees here. You've got Tony Collette in The Sixth Sense. The Matrix has a few options. Lawrence Fishburne, Hugo Weaving, Carrie Ann Moss, Fight Club, probably Helena Bonham Carter, The Blood Witch Project, Michael C. Williams, and Joshua Leonard. And being John Malkovich, you've got Cameron Diaz, Catherine Keener, John Malkovich, Eyes Wide Shut, Sidney Pollock, American Beauty has Bentley, Mena Suvari, and Thora Birch, and then that Magnolia Ensemble, Tom Cruise, Melora Walters, P.S. Hoffman, Philip Baker Hall, William H. Macy, Julianne Moore, John C. Riley. Finally, you could go with Liam Neeson, like our listener Zach from Chicago did, or you could go Natalie Portman, Ewan McGregor, maybe even Pernilla August as Shmi Skywalker, who... Earn some praise from me. And you. your favorite performance in my the film? My favorite performance in the film. Is it enough, though, to be my favorite performance of the series? Let's find out your choice first, Josh. Who is it? Well, it comes from that Magnolia group. And really hard, as we noted, to pick among them for the poll. Hard for me to pick from among them for this category. But I went with John C. Riley. I think I probably spent most of my time in our review talking about him. Uh, in a sense, this is another one of Riley's naive do-gooders we see him playing these parts here and there he can he can just imbue the the well-intentioned soul of these sorts of figures uh, somebody who just wants to do the right thing but this is balanced in magnolia with an openness to his failures at the same time it's when he takes officer jim to that other level of admitting that he hasn't done the right thing and that he has failed where you get the woundedness 
and the rawness of the performance that as good as everyone else is in the film really stands out to me and makes me think about for some reason, the movie seems to circle around him in my memory a little bit. Narratively, mm-hmm. it sort of yeah. goes there. Um, that's who the frogs fall upon. Yeah. Um, and I think it's not just because of the plot. I think it has to do with the performance as well. I lost my gun today when I left you, and I'm the laughing stock of a lot of people. I wanted to tell you. I wanted you to know, and it's on my mind. And it makes me look like a fool. And I feel like a fool. And you asked that we should say things, that we should say what we're thinking and not lie about things. Well, I can tell you that, this, that I lost my gun today. I'm not a good cop. I'm looked down at, and I know that, and I'm scared that once you find that out, you might not like me. I think that's a great point. It somehow feels like John C. Riley's movie, even though it's very much an equal ensemble, and you could argue that Cruz's character has an even bigger role and maybe even has more screen time. For my pick, indulge me for just a second because I will be very brief here. This is a show founded on top fives. So I've got a top five. Jeez. Catherine Keener, number five. (laughs) Cameron Diaz, number four. Two from being John Malkovich. Mm -hmm. The next three are all from Magnolia. And how do you pick? Philip Seymour Hoffman, three. John C. Riley, two. Okay. It was a tough competition. But I did go with Tom Cruise. Yeah. Respect the and tame the. I gave him the love as Frank T.J. Mackey, and I stole this feedback from our poll that came in from Tim Stevens. He said, "Writing to you from Newington, Connecticut, home of the world's smallest natural waterfall." Thanks, Tim. Forgetting Tom Cruise's Magnolia work in the poll seems well worthy of me sitting here silently judging you. Curdling his charms into upfront misogyny was impressive in and of itself. However, to then take that persona and reveal it to be false as well, that's the art. He hates men, including his dad and especially himself, but he can't square that. So instead, he has buried all that loathing under toxic masculinity, embracing being a man so hard in an effort to deny that he has only ever found comfort, support and love from women. Because to admit that is to admit that he, too, is vulnerable. To admit that is to admit he couldn't save his mother when she needed him. So, yeah, judging. That's judging us. Though, of course, Tom Cruise's character memorably does that in Magnolia silently as well. Great stuff from Tim. I think a very eloquent and accurate reading of Frank T.J. Mackey. During our review of Magnolia, I described him as malevolently charismatic. And that definitely is how we see him, at least for most of the film. He's someone you couldn't loathe more. And we go from that to being someone by the end of the film you at least identify with and probably do legitimately empathize with. I mentioned or understand where his malevolence may have come from. Exactly. And partly come from at the time. It did feel a little performative, maybe a little big. It was Cruz flexing different muscles, almost maybe a wink to the audience saying, hey, I can do this, too. I can be this kind of almost demonic character that we had never really seen from him before. But looking back, that was on me. That was baggage I was carrying in, I think, as a viewer. And with the distance of time and seeing a lot more Cruz performances, I see it now for what it is, which is just a legitimately great, powerful performance. That all said, Paul Thomas Anderson, I found a clip from him on YouTube where he talks about it. He was definitely thinking about his movie starness when he cast him and not just in him having to be charismatic, but he wanted to subvert that stardom a little bit. And he talks about the fact that the way he introduces him is not 
the way you may be thinking right now, which is his introduction as he comes out to 2001 on the stage with the lighting and everything with people cheering. It's actually first seeing him on a small little screen on the television set. He's just an infomercial guy, basically. And so right away, he's taking that persona of Cruz and that bigness, that image of him down a peg. And then even when he does walk out, finally, that's a movie star entrance. PTA says this, but it's all sort of undone by the fact that it's so cheesy. Tame it! Take it on head first with the skills that I will teach you at work and say, no! No! You will not control me. No! no! You will not take my soul. No! no! You will not win this game. Because yeah. it is a game, guys. You I referenced the part where he tells the interviewer that he's sitting there quietly judging her. I think you brought it up during our discussion. That maybe is his best moment in the film, that quiet still moment where he doesn't say anything for mm-hmm. a long time. It doesn't move at all in a performance that's filled with a lot of manic physicality, but him just sitting there judging her, you see the scorn, you see the spite that he feels for her in that moment, but Cruz also shows us that he's unraveling inside, and I think we see there the same quality in his stillness and his quiet that makes his performance in Eyes Wide Shut a contender there for me for lead actor as well. So what I like about the Cruz performance in that pick is in a way it's different from Riley who had done variations, as I said, on this character and would do more. And Cruz, this really stands apart. I know it opened doors for him to pursue maybe this darker side Mm -hmm. after 1999, but you didn't see a ton of it previous to this. And it's not just him deciding to play a bad guy. Um, It it was the depths and the nuances of this sort of bad guy that makes it um, really interesting, even looking back now in his filmography. And also, I don't think this came up, but and I'm sure people have made this connection many times, but I was just talking to someone the other day about Magnolia, and they mentioned the fact, just putting this in the context of his career, the underwear scene, the backflip or the somersault that sure. he does, being this callback, risky, risky, callback, you know, just bringing again a way of his past stardom right and putting it right in our face there in Magnolia. I wouldn't put it past one of the best cinephiles ever, exactly. Thomas Anderson. Best lead performance is next. Our plastic bag could go to Haley Joel Osment or Bruce Willis from The Sixth Sense, Keanu Reeves from The Matrix, Brad Pitt or Edward Norton from Fight Club, Heather Donahue, the lead, we think, in Blair Witch Project, John Cusack, the lead in Being John Malkovich, Cruz or Kidman in Eyes Wide Shut, or you could go with Academy Award winner that year, Kevin Spacey for American Beauty, or his co-star, Annette Bening. No nominee in this category from Magnolia or The Phantom Menace. Josh, who did you land on? So there was a little discussion of where should we put Nicole Kidman? Right. Because in way, some ways she's co-lead in Eyes Wide Shut, but certainly gets far less screen time than Tom Cruise. Ultimately, for me, it didn't matter. Wherever she landed, she was getting the award. Um, I'm with you. This is probably the standout performance of the series. And thinking about it some more in Eyes Wide Shut as um, this, this wife who takes off the first mask that allows them to to take off many masks in that movie. She's also something of a ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. (laughs) She just – she dredges up the past by bringing up this incident on vacation that they had in the previous year. That drives their crucial present, which the movie is mostly concerned with, Mm -hmm. right? This 48 hours or whatever it was. And those 48 hours are going to determine – their future, um, specifically instantly in that toy store where we end up at the end of the film. But really, we get a sense of their, fu- their future life together. So what I love about 
thinking about it that way is that Kidman has an out-of-time quality to her. Um, and her ethereal line readings in this movie particular capture this ghostliness that makes her at once the very human player in this story mm-hmm. and also somehow um, a, a driver, a spiritual sort of driver of it as well. She's just amazing in Eyes Wide Shut. I was ready to give up everything. You. Helena. My whole future. Everything. And yet it was weird because at the same time, you were dearer to me than ever. She really is. And you'll be happy to know, Josh, that this is the last category I did a top five for. <laughs> Heather Donahue at number five. Brad Pitt, number four. This is pointless, you know. It just matters who you gave it to. Tom Cruise, number three. Okay, great. I will continue, sir. Keanu Reeves, number two. Fascinating. Number one, though. Yes. It's now lacking in all suspense because you also named her. It's Nicole Kidman. And I'm with you. You ended up at the right place. Yeah. That the sequence you're referring to, which is her big scene in the film, it's a high wire act. You watch her go from contemptuous to self-righteous to indignant to angry and giggly and mocking and she's also nakedly honest and when you watch her reflecting back on that fantasy you sense in her both the regret of having the fantasy the regret she maybe even feels now the regret she felt as a wife as a mother then in the moment but also the regret that slight tinge of regret of not following through on it There's something in Kidman's performance that, to me, suggests a sensuality to her recollection that there's a lot of layers to what Kidman's doing there. And I would add the vindication in knowing that whatever pain this is bringing about, there's a truth in it that her husband needed to hear. That's right. About who she is as as not even just a woman, but as a human being that he had not recognized yet. Yes. And so whatever this was bringing about, she feels a rightness in, in saying it. The best performance I'd forgotten is the next category in our nine from 99 awards. Your pick is. Well, this is probably not a surprise because I think we both had a similar reaction. We'll see if we both had the same pick. But John Malkovich and being John Malkovich, we gave so much praise to him in our review and Adam Frost in his poll comments absolutely captured why Malkovich is so great. And going into it, I thought he was just kind of there for a joke, right? That like yep. maybe he showed up for a scene or two so they could put his name in He's the title. He's there to be a vessel for the characters yeah. and kind of for the movie. But, but that's not the case. It's, yeah, the best performance in the movie, I think. So it's not just about the screen time either, though. It's it's more about his performance went beyond self-parody uh, and created a full character, a character whose, whose journey in the story mattered as much as anyone else's, um, someone who had his own errant desires, how much of this movie was about errant desire, mm-hmm. his own narcissism, um, and really everything else that Charlie Kaufman is writing about in this movie. Of course. Yeah. What Adam said about Malkovich playing Cusack playing Malkovich really is for me something that stuck with me after the movie and after our discussion. I don't think it came up when we were praising Malkovich, but you see it. You see it in his physicality. You see how he becomes more like Cusack, like he's someone who doesn't quite fit in his body anymore. And it makes perfect sense, obviously, for that great film. I did definitely consider Malkovich 
would have been my number two, I guess, Josh, but I stopped with the top fives. I did, though here I am listing other candidates. It was a nice reminder to see how good Heather Donahue was. Yeah, so that is. was kind of a performance I'd forgotten. I certainly didn't remember how good Cameron Diaz was in being John Malkovich. I almost made it a tie with her and my ultimate pick, but I had to go with Mena Suvari from American Beauty. She was the biggest revelation for me of the series in terms of performances. I thought of her in my recollection of the film the way I thought the movie did, which was to view her as an object, to view her completely one-dimensionally the way Lester views her. She is there to be wanted and really nothing more. And that is how she sees herself, too, at least very early in the film. It's how she derives her confidence. It's how she derives her sense of identity. But just like Ricky in that plastic bag scene asks us to take a closer look at the things we see, the things we think we see, the things we think we understand, the things we write off as maybe being a bit vulgar or shallow and there's nothing more complex to consider, we get a much fuller, more complicated view of her character, Angela, as Lester does throughout that movie. And I think Suvari embodies all of that. He just pulled down his pants and yanked it out. You know, like, say hello to Mr. Happy. Gross. It wasn't gross. It was kind of cool. So did you do it with him? Of course I did. He's a really well-known photographer. He shoots for Elle on, like, a regular basis. It would have been so majorly stupid of me to turn him down. You are a total prostitute. Hey, that's how things really are. You just don't know because you're this pampered little suburban chick. So are you. You know, you, you could have gone with Natalie Portman as Queen Amidala here. You were so taken with and surprised. Yeah. I mean, that would have been nice. I love that performance. <laughs> <laughs> that was my impression of her as Queen Amidala. Oh, at least okay. the decoy. I thought that was C-3PO. Pretty stiff. Pretty stiff. Okay. Biggest surprise of the series. And this one confused me a little bit when we came up with it collectively, because at first I thought it could be a performance or it could be a scene in the movie meant to be a counter to the category we're going to get to next, which is the best iconic scene from the series. This might be a smaller scene that was a surprise to us. But I think where we both probably landed is maybe something larger, maybe a theme that eluded us on first viewing or some other aspect of the movie beyond just one bit of the plot or performances that stood out to us. What was it for you? I'm going to go micro, actually. And it's with something. I'm going to stick with being John Malkovich. Not surprising. As I said, one of the two films, I believe, that I had not seen since 1999. So had forgotten a lot. But I was surprised and spent a little time on this in our review how good the puppetry work was in being John Malkovich and how it wasn't only there as a joke. Again, if you had asked me, I would have said, well, it's there to make Craig seem silly because who does marionette puppets yeah. anymore on the street um, to make money? And it is meant as a joke. It's to show his lack of understanding how the world, the real world works. But the time and attention that is given to the actual puppets was really impressive. We see the movie opens with a whole routine. I think it's called the the Dance of Despair. And it's an amazing, expressive sequence. I mentioned the puppeteers or the designer's name when we reviewed Being John Malkovich, but it's Camela Portuguese working with images in motion. And the onset puppeteer was Philip Huber. So yeah, a joke, sure. But plenty of time was given to their artistry. Totally forgot that. Mm -hmm. Really appreciated it. I think I mentioned, too, 
Puppets wasn't something I probably appreciated in general in 1999. And just yeah. the more movies you watch and the more you learn about what goes into different type of movies, you're obviously your appreciation is going to grow and expand. It's something I'm interested in now. To see it done so well, beautifully and carefully there was a really welcome surprise. Well, it adds such a layer of depth to Cusack's character. I because think so. you don't see him as purely pathetic, yes. even though he largely is. Didn't see it in 99, like it sounds like you didn't, but certainly see it now. He is an artist, mm-hmm. whether he's appreciated or not, whether or not he's got the right personality for life. He is someone who is very good at his craft, and we should appreciate that. And being John Malkovich for me was the movie that overall surprised me. Yeah, I'd say the so most. too. It was the movie I remembered the least vividly, I think, somehow. I also forgot how good the puppetry was. I forgot how much screen time to go back to another category and how important Malkovich's performance was. I forgot how loathsome, as much as I can appreciate him as an artist, how overall how loathsome Craig Mm -hmm. really is and how sympathetic Lottie is. But I went with a different film for my choice and I'm going with Fight Club and the surprise to me and it dominated our discussion really was that Fight Club doesn't promote toxic masculinity. It exposes it. And I was shocked to see this kind of bizarre love story really play out on screen, which I think is what it ultimately is in its own roundabout way. That end image of a man and woman, Ed Norton and Helena Bonham Carter holding hands. He at his most honest and vulnerable, something he hasn't shown at any point up to now, certainly something he hasn't been able to show a woman. And as you may recall, my reading of the film is largely that that split personality, that character of Brad Pitt, of Tyler Durden, really is born out of Edward Norton's character's fear, his fear of women, largely. And he goes to the length he goes to to ultimately protect himself from her. And it's only at the end of the film when all of that artifice and that shield has been stripped away from him that he can finally expose himself to her and finally be a man who can see her as his equal and not see her as a threat, which is how he otherwise characterizes her and views her throughout the entire film. And I'm going to still suggest, I'm not convinced of that, there's the possibility that that is a last flickers of life fantasy that which doesn't undermine your theory at mm-hmm. all. It just culminates in a different way that he, he was successful in killing himself. And at that moment mm. is kind of could, could could get to the place he wished he had been able to get to see. But you're just too cynical. And I'm I'm yes. hopeful. Yes, that must be it. Yeah. Our next category is the best iconic scene. So we picked nine movies. Like we said, didn't matter if you feel like they're the best nine films from the year or not. There's certainly nine movies worthy of discussion and consideration and all left their marks on 1999. And they all contained at least one iconic scene. We wondered which of those iconic scenes is the best. So here's part of the challenge as we read through some of the nominees here, Josh. If you're going to call it iconic, you can argue that a number of these films have more than one really memorable scene or more than one scene that stands out in your mind when I say the title. But I think for it to really work, if you're going to talk about iconic, it has to be a case where I say the movie's title and everybody listening who's familiar with these films or at least familiar with the last 20 years of pop culture, they all say basically the same scene, the same image or bit of dialogue pops into their head. I think with some complications here, with some difficult ones, We got them mostly right. So I say The Sixth Sense and you think of? I see dead people. You think of The Matrix. 
Of course, the big showdown rescuing Morpheus, the kung fu training sequence, which is maybe my favorite scene in the movie. Those are great. But if you talk about the Matrix, don't we all go to? Red pill, blue pill. Fight Club? The first rule of Fight Club. Blair Witch, Heather Donahue, right? Yes, I'm so scared looking into the camera, snotty nose and all. That's it. Being John Malkovich. Malkovich, inside Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. (laughs) In Eyes Wide Shut, I had a couple options initially, but then I realized, of course, it's Fidelio. It probably is. I mean, Kidman's scene, I think, would be a close second. But for most people, they're going to go to that. That's it, right? Terrible, I think terrible mansion. We've touched on it. Alice's confession might be the best scene of the movie, but I think that party is what people most vividly remember. American Beauty. This is the plastic bag, so it's got to be the plastic bag. Now, we're going to jump ahead just for a second to The Phantom Menace. Do we go with your beloved pod racing scene? I don't see how we can choose anything else. Okay. Magnolia, I skip. You'll understand why in a moment. But I think that one's the hardest to pin down. I think that there are a few different ones from that film and maybe not one, but maybe I'm wrong. We're going to see as we get through our picks here, Josh. So which of those did you go with? So thinking about the movies of 1999 overall and the ones that we revisited specifically, it had to be for me something that involved a twist or a mind bender. So many movies included that. Sixth Sense, Matrix, Fight Club, Malkovich. And I think The Matrix is probably the biggest mind bender of those movies. Maybe Malkovich, but it kind of does it in such a different way. Um, I went with The Matrix. I went with Blue Pill, Red Pill. This idea of blissful ignorance or harsh truth. Do you want the movies to keep you comfortable? Or do you want ones that upend your expectations and mess you up? I think... Even the films that didn't involve a twist or a mind bender, like Eyes Wide Shut, Blair Witch Project, they also could be grouped in with these disturbing, unexpected experiences. Um, Most of the movies we watched did that to us. And I think it's all summarized in the blue pill or red pill scene. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Fantastic scene, fantastic choice. I did almost go kind of contrary, and I almost pulled a Josh here. And Pick something wanted, off the list. <laughs> I wanted to make a case for the plastic bag. It's a scene... It's an idea that's been the subject of so much mockery over the years. And as we both felt, even you who strongly disliked American Beauty, it turns out it's a pretty powerful, instructive scene. But I kept coming back to Magnolia and Paul Thomas Anderson, as one does. And part of the reason I kept coming back is I couldn't settle on what the iconic scene from that film would be. At first, I thought of the image of Cruz as Frank T.J. Mackey, some part of one of his seminars. That's Magnolia. Or is it his catharsis? Is it his scene, his breakdown with Jason Robards? Of course, you could also say that when you think of Magnolia, we've already referenced it one or twice on the show. It's frogs. Yeah. Maybe just the frogs falling is truly the iconic scene. I feel like it might be. So that did occur to me. But then it really hit me that the sequence I love most from that film that I think is just as inextricable from Magnolia as the frogs is the wise up sing along. The Amy Mann sequence in Magnolia where every character in the film 
sings to the same song and Paul Thomas Anderson cuts between them. You talked about the idea of wanting to go with a mind-bending scene. For me, it was thinking about 99 in terms of the bold artistry of it, the sheer audacity of a sequence like that, the in-your-face, just-deal-with-it-ness of that scene. Just the thought of Paul Thomas Anderson thinking that he's going to put an exclamation point on this epic tale of interconnected misfits and malcontents by having them break out in song, almost like it's a musical all of a sudden, but not really because they're all singing along with Amy Mann non-diegetically. We still hear her voice the whole time too. And then after that sequence plays out, that's when the rain finally stops and it makes perfect sense because that's as much as an unexplainable but cathartic act of God as the frog's falling from the sky. And I think for me, that scene most sums up the kind of brilliant insanity of that film and of 99 as a whole. Yeah, that's probably, you know, to go back to the question we pose at the very start, what image, what scene comes to mind when you hear the title? I would say frogs, but I, the sing-along would be number two. So fair enough. Good choice. Okay. Thank you. I'm glad you approve. Best picture is, of course, our final category. We've said a lot about these films. I don't think we probably need to go into a whole lot of detail here. How did you finally pick one of these nine films? Because there were several of them that you were very high on, Josh. There were. And, you know, when I looked at my top 10 films from 1999 list 20 years ago, um, there would be some shifting and some of the films we saw would move into that list or higher up on that list. But I'm still sticking with my number one from that year, which was included in this series and I think held up the best. It's an almost flawless picture for me, and it is The Blair Witch Project. I mean, after The Matrix, you could make the argument. Here's the other reason I'm picking it for this series as we're considering the decade as a whole, in addition to the films themselves. After The Matrix, it's maybe the most culturally influential, the idea of establishing, firmly establishing, maybe not the first in the genre, but this found footage concept. Um, video cam horror as well. And I would argue its copycats are better than the Matrixes, things like the Paranormal Activity films or even something like Unfriended, which is a variation on that. We got so many cheapo ripoffs of the Matrix and its kung fu action scenes, special effects driven action scenes. Um, I kind of like the Blair Witch Project's legacy a little bit better. And honestly, I could have filled out didn't give any awards to it, but closely considered many things from the Blair Witch Project for all these other categories. Heather Donahue in the lead. Joshua Leonard was one of those surprises of how good he is as one of those three filmmakers. Yeah, and a guy we've seen in other movies, unlike Heather Donahue. And he's very good in all of them. Prove that it wasn't a fluke for sure in other movies. Iconic scene, yes, I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. Definitely could have included that. And speaking of which... This movie still scares the crap out of me. Every time I watch it, whatever scenario, I think when I revisited this, I had to do it, you know, on my laptop while traveling in a hotel room. And I don't even think it was dark out. I think I had like had to pull the the shades in the room and it still really, really scared me. So it's tough for me to go with the debut from two filmmakers who yeah. haven't 
done much since. Who's Stanley Kubrick? Especially Who's Spike Jones. Who's especially PTA? considering my runner-up. My runner-up was Eyes Wide Shut. Who needs him? That's what I was going with at number two. I'm not going to give you my top five. Well, we can maybe we can do some of that. Well, yeah, we got to do the ranking. I did a ranking. Okay. Of course I did. Of it's course, the our final, producer told me to. So it's the final masterpiece from a tourist icon, Stanley Kubrick, as you're pointing out. Yes, Eyes Wide Shut should probably be my number one. But as I said in the Phantom Menace review, Adam, auteurism isn't everything. Uh-huh. So the Blair Witch Project, it's it's stuck there. It's at number one. Okay. Well, I did not do a top 10 of 99 back in 99, but back in November of 2009, here on the show, episode 281, I, along with a former co-host, did share our top five films of 99. Looking back, obviously, 10 years, part of our year-by-year countdown. And at the time, two of the films from our series made my top five. I had Malkovich at number five. I had American Movie, the documentary, at four. Okay. The Matrix, the other film from this series, obviously, was at three. My crazy choice that I love all out of proportion to the rest of the world, (laughs) Tim Robbins' Cradle Will Rock at number two. And my number one was Three Kings. Yeah, that's right. Now, at the time, we also did list our six through ten, just like we had honorable mentions. Three of the other films from our series were in my six through ten, Eyes Wide Shut, Fight Club, Magnolia, along with The Insider and Pedro Almodovar's All About My Mother. So here's how I decided to rank the films this time. For me, there were four tiers to it, basically. I had at the bottom, the only movie I outright dislike, even if I appreciate some things about it, Josh, The Phantom Menace is at nine. All right. American Beauty is in the next tier, not excited about it, have a lot of issues with it, but ultimately was won over by a few different elements of it, still does not compare at all to the next seven films in the series. There were three films that were all kind of right packed together for me, Josh. I had The Blair Witch Project at seven, Fight Club at six, The Sixth Sense at five, but I could reorder those and put Mm -hmm. The Blair Witch Project at five, honestly. The top four then, all again grouped together in their own tier, really tough all interchangeable. Malkovich at four, Magnolia at three, The Matrix at two. And yeah, I've got Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut at number one. I I thought for sure it'd be Magnolia. I thought about it, obviously, but as troubling and unnerving as it often is, this world of Eyes Wide Shut, it's the world I most want to stay inside of. It's the world I most want to examine. And all of the best films in this series, I think, still reflect truths 20 years later but eyes wide shuts truths about relationships about marriage about sex about jealousy they seem eternal to me and they seem more primal and i guess that's why it edged out some of those other great films for my top spot so my ranking yes the film that i like the least american beauty is at the bottom there and then i went with being john malkovich and then there's like a huge gap right from american beauty for me to being john malkovich i don't exactly have tears but then the matrix phantom menace right there the sixth sense magnolia and then my top three fight club eyes wide shut and the blair witch project at number one now you mentioned the one you love out of proportion from 1999 from other people yeah i have one that If I'm revising this, I'm going to bump. For some reason, in 1999, I did have Blair Witch Project at number one. Bringing Out the Dead was my number two. Love that movie. Talented Mr. Ripley, which I don't think I've seen since. I I must have really gone far. That was at number three. Here's the weird one. South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. And what I don't get about that is I wasn't the hugest fan of the series either. So just been something about the experience of that movie at that time. Yeah. Eyes Wide Shut I had at five. Obviously, I'd move that back up. Hirokazu. 
Correa's Afterlife made it into my top 10 in 99. Phantom Menace was my seventh favorite movie. Princess Mononoke from Hayao Miyazaki made it at number eight. The Straight Story from David Lynch was number nine. And I had The Matrix at number 10. So to shake all those up a little bit after this series, um, yeah, I'm moving eyes wide shut up. Definitely, like you, appreciated that much more. Fight Club and Magnolia would both join the top 10. Appreciated those so much more, especially Magnolia. I think I came around to like a lot more on this revisit. And obviously, I'm going to dump South Park to make some room for these. The other one I'd put in there, I want to, you mentioned it, is All About My Mother. I saw that for the first time only a couple of years ago, Mm -hmm. and it's one of Elmodovar's best, so I'd have to make room for that. So yeah, in retrospect, I'd shift that list around, not drastically, but I would change a few things. So obviously I'm happy that Magnolia moved into the top 10. I'm happy that Eyes Wide Shut moved up, but I know so many listeners out there were doing the same thing I was, which was doing a double take when you listed your current ranking and somehow put The Matrix Below The Phantom Menace. I thought during that review, we were both pretty much in lockstep in our appreciation of The Matrix, almost being a perfect action film, sci-fi action film. Yeah, I think the big change for me there is the gun stuff. Yeah. I I think I just really feel that differently about it and that more strongly in retrospect. And though so much of it held up. There were quibbles where it's probably one of those that dropped a little bit in my estimation mm-hmm. while still being one of the best films of 1999. I mean, I'm not dumping it out of – I don't know where it would be. It would probably be my 10th or 15 at this point, but it fell a little bit for me. Okay. It just seems for me – I had it at number two only because it feels essential for me. It feels like a film that we all probably should revisit like every five years. Well, I mean, it de- it defines – it defines the year for sure, mm-hmm. but that's not what this list is. It's it's the ones I like the best. It's my list, Adam. Yeah, you I can't know. tell me what to put on no, it, and the listeners can't tell me. It's whatever we want it to be. I get it. <laughs> I want it to be the end of the show. It is our show. In the show archives, of course, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going all the way back to 2005. Also at filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current film spotting poll. It's the big question of the year. What is the best film? of 2019 to order film spotting t-shirts or other film spotting merch visit filmspotting.net slash shop and to subscribe to the weekly film spotting newsletter you can visit filmspotting.net slash newsletter you can find us on twitter and facebook adam is at film spotting i'm at larson on film at least i'm still pretty active on facebook adam how's is the film spotting facebook page no No. it's still there people could check it out people could check it out okay maybe if a few more people wrote in Okay. I'd be more active. We'd All reply right. more. There you go. Okay. In wide release this weekend, Jumanji, The Next Level, Richard Jewell, the latest from Clint Eastwood about the 96 Atlanta Olympics bombing, Black Christmas is out, a college-set slasher film, and Bombshell, the Fox News harassment scandal starring Charlize Theron, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie. It's directed by Jay Roach of Austin Powers and Meet the Parents fame. I have only seen one of those movies. I've seen Richard Jewell. The discourse on it is correct for the most part in that the portrayal of the journalist in the film. Yeah, that's what I've seen. It undermines the film, not just because I have any strong feelings necessarily, though I do, about the sanctity of journalists or how they should be portrayed. But it's such a simplification. The whole movie just so starkly reduces the media and the FBI Okay. To craven villains. So that, to craven villains. That was my question is, you know, it yes, 
the representation is an issue. Yes. But if you did not know any of the background right. and you still watch this movie, Which you're, you're saying case. it is would the case still stand out as a flaw. 100%. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. It takes a movie and it takes very complicated, complex subject matter and reduces it to good guys and bad guys. And that is unfortunate. Primarily because overall the film works. I like Sam Rockwell as the lawyer to Paul Walter Hauser as Richard Jewell character. I really like that performance too from Hauser. And I think it's worth seeing even if it's not going to be one of the films that I have anywhere close to my top 10 of the year. In limited release, Uncut Gems is out. This is the latest from the Safdie Brothers starring Adam Sandler. Mentioned it before. Think it's just out in New York and L.A. right now, Josh. And it hits the Chicago area on Christmas Day. We're going to get a little preview of that film next week on our show. You'll hear my conversation with the Safdie Brothers about that film. And we will discuss the latest in the Star Wars saga, Episode Nine. The Rise of Skywalker. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.